the amount of money they pay these anti-union lawyers and they use on these settlements, it, it, it's an, it's, it is an insult to spend money against somebody when you could have spent less money something for somebody. Welcome to Empathy Media Labs, Maryland Subsidiarity, where we discuss state and local ideas that will improve our communities and shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Richard Deshay Elliott, who is a Democrat running for the Maryland House of Delegates in District 24 in Prince George's County. Richard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for having me again. You'd like me to introduce myself. I'm Richard Deshaies, mm -hmm. and I'm a candidate for the House of Delegates in the 24th Legislative District, which stretches just about from Bowie High School to Duval High School to Woodmore Elementary School, and then follows Martin Luther King Highway down to the Suitland and Hillcrest Heights, Hillcrest Heights area. What do I want to do? I want to be in the Environment Transportation Committee. On that committee, I want to pursue as much climate change, resilience, money, but also funding for programs in this area that weatherize home, build home ownership in the local area, improve wages, especially for the big businesses like Amazon and target to a living wage and pushing for maximum transportation accessibility in our state via rail and bus. And we're going to get deep into some of the policies and you have an incredible policy overviews of every different policy. So if you go to richformaryland.com, you can, people can really see what your stances are and what your ideas are if and when you get elected. But taking a step back, could you talk a bit about where you came from, Maryland, and how sure. you got, got to here and like a little bit of your past in, in politics before running for this seat? Sure. So I was born in Sierra Vista, Arizona, right outside of Fort Huachuca. I moved to Fort Meade when I was a couple months old. I moved to the Glendale area where I live. At the age of four, I went to Woodmore Elementary, Thomas Johnson Middle, and Duval High School. I would say Duval High School is where I really got a knack. I would not say for politics, but just solving problems for people because people would ask for help us put together a field trip, help us take notes for this club, that club. Uh, and that really evolved into just helping people because they want help. In college, I went to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I got a degree in American studies, with minors in history and political science, and I completed most of an education certificate. I attended a Johns Hopkins University, got a master's in political science. And some of the other campaigns I've worked on, Senator Jill P. Carter, when she ran for Congress, after the unfortunate passing of Congressman Cummings, I ran her campaign. I've worked on, I'd say at this point, over 20 different campaigns, ranging from Dewan Gay, the youngest ever elected Annapolis council member, board of education members in Prince George's, delegate at congressional campaigns. And right now I'm, of course, running my own campaign, which is a great learning experience. And you started running almost, I, I think, a, at least a, around a year ahead I, of it. Yeah. I, I, so I filed, or excuse me, I announced on September, in September of 2020. So even before yeah. the general election in 2020, I found it imperative because at that time, Many people had not had contact from their legislators, didn't really know what was going on. I was in Baltimore at the time trying to help. I, I was still in my graduate program, but I was also helping some individuals with setting up senior programs, helping distribute food. And that showed there's a real leadership that has been revealed during COVID, whether there's leaders who don't know what they're doing or do what they're doing for the bidding of individuals who are not those electing them or relying on entities that like Hopkins that show during many parts of the pandemic, they did not care about the most underserved black poor areas of the state. So 
I've been running for over two years. I've distributed something along the lines of 40,000 pieces of litter. I have left flyers at many, many, many local businesses. I do not have yard signs. Why? Because people snatch them and because they're extremely expensive. But I still have emphasized the literature game, particularly my track record on local issues. And so going onto your website as well, you've also written bills on a number of subjects and it, just going through some of the top line of what your ideas and policies will be on the campaign. Could you talk a little bit about healthcare? You have a very universal approach of how we should, how we should provide healthcare to everyone in Maryland. So I support the Healthy Maryland Act. Legislator, I would vote for the Healthy Maryland Act, but I'll speak for what I want to do, not just through my vote, but through direct advocacy. I'm supporting Peter Franchot for governor. One thing Peter Franchot has emphasized in his campaign is he wants to expand Medicaid. Expanding Medicaid is a great idea because of the cost. You only pay about a third of the cost of a Medicaid program. The other two thirds are paid by the federal government. So when, when Franchot is governor and when I'm delegate, I'm going to propose Medicaid existing for individuals 55 and older, everybody with disabilities, everybody with pre-existing conditions, and Marylanders under the age of 26. So if, you are, if you're 25 or younger, if you're 55 or older, if you're disabled or you have pre-existing condition, I think you should be eligible for Medicaid, which would make Medicaid a more cost-effective program in our state, and I think also save our hospitals a lot of money and a lot of red tape. So that's just one of the ways I want to help us push for universal health care, which has been so needed during the pandemic. Not just universal health care, but we need more clinics. Francia wants to put community clinics within 15 minutes walking distance or 15 of, of urban areas, 15 minutes driving distance of rural areas. If we have universal health care, but people do not have a local clinic, they will remain skeptical of the doctors. So there's the little parts of it to make it more available in your community, significantly cheaper to the point where I obviously would prefer no premiums. I want it to be free at point of service and where there are cost limits on prescription drugs. We have the prescription affordability board in our state, which has not really had the teeth from the current governor and other in institutions. If we had an upper limit for insulin, for aspirin, and for any other drug that is life-saving, life-necessary, that would save our state a lot of money because all that money we spend on high price prescriptions is money that's leaving the state. So we can help a lot of people with just those little things that one might say the most conservative candidate for governor is running on. I said one might say, I do not think that, but one might say. And no one should go into debt over a medical bill is something no. else so that, that a lot, I think the majority of bankruptcies in the United States is from medical uh, expenses. And in, in the state of Maryland, uh, we have a program where individuals who can't afford their bills, there's a fund directly established for them. Hospitals such as Johns Hopkins have deliberately not advertised that fund, do not even let their employees that are, that are low income know about this fund. And as a result, this is a fund that has not been tapped, even though we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. So that is a fund that we need to not just shore up. But if people don't know a program exists that doesn't exist, it should be required for all hospital patients under, actually all patients should be aware of it. And then particularly with your bill, it should be presented at the top if, it, if it's known that you're from a low income zip code. So moving on to your youth and education platform, I, I really love seeing your 
starting salary for Maryland teachers at 60,000. And that's an at least. I've seen people, <clears throat> particularly in the light of the school shootings, and I agree with them, that people should be, the teachers should be paid 90 to $100,000 because teachers are now social workers, teachers, tutors, peer mediators, police officers, psychiatrists. There's so many different things that it is very, very hard to just educate. My grandmother was an educator for about 50 years in Anne Arundel and around the world at the Department of Defense. I have the highest respect for teachers and the highest respect should come with some of the highest public in public sector salaries. So not just support that $60,000 minimum starting salary, but here's another thing that uh, Francho has talked about. BWI is a state-owned airport. I think that during the summer months, teachers should fly for the bare bottom cost. I didn't even know it was a state-run airport until he talked about it. So there's a lot of things even outside of just the pay and the salary, including student loan relief. All teachers should be relieved of their student loans I think on, on day one of year three, you should have to pay for them at all in the first two years, but just to make sure they stay in education for on the first day of year three, that all student loans are forgiven in the first two years, they're frozen as they have been during the pandemic. So there's salary, but there's also a lot of benefits of state that should go to teachers first and foremost, especially in the summer months where they're recovering and planning. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I've, I've done some long-term substitute teaching myself in New Mexico and some of the things that I came to the conclusion is just if you pay the teachers a competitive salary, keeps them there and, and make sure that they're not going into poverty to just to teach. And at the same time, making sure class sizes are smaller. So you have enough teachers and try to have students. If you can have 15 students yep. around there is a, a good amount. And then infrastructure, making sure that the schools are fully equipped with everything needed and, and the support staff as well. And I just heard that I think earlier this week, some Baltimore schools closed down because they don't have air conditioning. Look how far out we are from the summer. Uh, we need HVAC desperately under, cli under climate change. AC is a, is a human necessity. I'm not going to even say it's a human right. If you don't have AC in a lot of circumstances, you can die yeah. under the current weather conditions. And that's terrifying. There were reports earlier this week of seniors who were basically cooked to death because their AC was turned off and their heat was turned on. So we need all of our schools to have HVAC. In the schools that are overcrowded, we can add paraeducators. I was a paraeducator. We can add guidance counselors so we can reduce that student-to-teacher ratio because the ideal number is about 11 or 12 students per teacher. That is unfortunately statistically impossible in some of our schools just because of the size of the student bodies. So we also need new school construction at the best cost, but also with the best quality. And I think that is done by emphasizing the local contractors, the people who are invested in Maryland in order to build them rather than going with these national and international models. For example, the Prince George's County P3. I support new schools. I also support not wasting money. P3s almost always cost more than public projects. Almost <laughs> always. So, so I was going to ask you about that. So in Prince George's County, they're trumpeting it as this great public-private partnership, being able to get money to build new schools. And everyone agrees we need to build new schools. But we also understand that when you have a for-profit company, that money is being extracted out instead of being reinvested in and given to the people who are actually creating the value in that project oftentimes. So could you talk a little bit more what, what this project is for those people who aren't, aren't aware of it? 
there's a public-private partnership or P3. I'm going to say P3 just because it's quicker. When a, a governmental entity and a business generally or a nonprofit enter into an agreement where, you know, they split, they share the costs. Obviously, business and government have different incentives. Government's role is at least supposed to be providing services for the people at the best cost, the best quality service. Businesses, their goal is to make money, ideally at the lowest cost with the worst possible services. Very different incentives. So this is the first time in the history of the United States there's ever been a P3 for school construction. It has only ever been done once in Canada. And in that, that example, there were huge cost overruns. The purple line is a perfect example of P3s gone awry. From what Francho told me regarding Hogan and the contract, the individuals they entered that P3 with were a known fraudster contractor who refused work while still able to get pay. And now we are well over budget on the purple line while well behind track and with the prospect now of the purple line not being fully uh, integrated with the community it's going into and potentially causing mass gentrification in the Prince George's Latino community. So P3s, I think in general, are something to stay away from. Uh, I would even dare to say that under ideal circumstances, bonds are to be stayed away from. The best circumstances to pay for a project direct Whenever you have bonds or wherever you have P3s, you are adding additional financialization costs with a bond. There's interest. The interest gets paid by the poorest people towards the wealthiest people. With a P3, we are paying the highest cost for generally the lowest or mid-quality mid services, and it generally takes longer to build than it should. And the Purple Line, I think, was a great case study in why we should emphasize publicly financed, publicly run state projects with union wages as well because i think that just came up as well that some of the people in the contract are not in, in unionized yep happening right now in south baltimore fort covington the con the people doing it it's not union wages and they are actually they're committing wage theft so we need the strongest possible protections in place many of the workers don't know their full rights stuff's not posted on the ground it's important they have prevailing wages, benefits, and, and, and pensions. We got to get back to pensions and not just investment, but guaranteed direct benefits in, light, in later life. And so just kind of going through the youth and education, you're also looking at universal pre-K and after-school care, free school breakfast and lunch for all students, mm -hmm. and tuition-free higher education, including trade school. I think that's very important as well. It's needed for the future of our state. We have seen under COVID that the, the states with the most higher education, the states that have the most accessible or the most uh, integratable within the ordinary economy, higher education are doing better. That doesn't have to be college. That can be trade school. One goal I have for the long term, I'd say for the eight years of the next governors, I want there to be, we have 27 municipalities. I want there to be 27 trade schools, not just the high schools that have a trade in them, but 27 trade schools in Prince George's County for the wide variety of trades we have in the state, particularly in hospitality and tourism. People don't look at that as, as, as something that needs certification, but hospitality and tourism, I truly think is going to be one of our great uh, investments in the long future because of the beauty of our state, the quality of the food and the quality of the people. So moving on to workers' rights, could you talk a bit about your minimum wage proposal? Yes. So I fully support increasing the minimum wage to at least $25 an hour 
for the big businesses, the Amazons, the Targets, the Walmarts, the McDonald's, the places that have made so much money during the pandemic, where many of their workers have gotten sick, have died, have left working entirely to pursue other means of, of accruing income. These businesses can more than pay out these salaries. And not only does that increase the, the wage potential of all these individuals who can go from making 25 at McDonald's to making perhaps 26 at a different business because they would have that as their floor for income, it would also generate so much money for social programs. I do not particularly support tax increases, especially on working people. The best way of increasing the state budget, in my honest opinion, is increasing the minimum wage, which will create all sorts of a virtuous cycle in adding money to our state for poor people programs and for economic development. And then if you're getting $25 an hour, you don't need certain subsidies for these workers for their health and food and everything else just to survive. Absolutely. That's why with Delegate Von Stewart, I helped him write the bill to ban corporate subsidies in the state budget. The money that we pay for workers, I worked at Safeway. The workers at Safeway who at that time were making about $11 an hour, some of them who had children, couldn't afford to live. I have no issue about me paying money for people to live, but that's when I need to and not when the company can do it instead of me being the middleman. So if we raise the wages, we can save a lot of money on those programs because people can actually make enough money to live off rip. And we can invest more money into those programs. So people who have been made unworkable because of COVID, handicap, they've lost, their training is out of date, et cetera. So we can help take care of those people in their middle age and old age too. And you're also uh, pro-union on, on that. Could you talk a bit about what you yeah. want to do with the guarantee for union rights for all Marylanders? This past year, there was a this, this, uh, House Speaker, Adrian Jones, she wanted to enshrine the right to reproductive freedoms in the state constitution. I fully agreed with it. Uh, my governor candidate supported it. Many of my other friends and colleagues supported it. It never came up for a vote in the state. I support that same right, not just for reproductive freedoms, but also for a healthy and safe environment, as well as for the right to collectively bargain in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. Because if that right is included in the state constitution and then an entity violates it, you have a much larger apparatus of law at your back to help you, whether somebody's stealing your wages, whether somebody is unfairly uh, impacting your right to organize. And I think the Starbucks people would absolutely hate that provision in that state constitution, but it absolutely needed and would go a great way to raising wages across the board in the state. And we don't have too many Apple stores in, mm -hmm. in Maryland, but I'm actually going to be interviewing some folks from Bowie who are organizing at their, mm -hmm. the Apple store there. And it's just crazy. These huge tech giants are still right. uh, fighting organization because they may lose a little bit of their lucrative gains and right. dividends and, and stock prices and things like that. <laughs> Mention the amount of money they pay these anti-union lawyers and they use on these settlements. It, it, it's an, it's, it is an insult to spend money against somebody when you could have spent less money something for somebody. I think that is one of the most despicable insults to the workers when the CEOs and the high-level managers that never leave their, their AC offices are somehow in Starbucks grooming and sweeping and mopping just so they can keep an eye on the workers and make sure every person that says union yes on the cup gets a harsh look.
But I, I'm, I'm fully for it. And I think that the Amazon union and the Starbucks union and the Apple union are going to help to start build the base for the private union sector in the state. There's also another really important one I want to bring up. Maryland is about to be at the cusp of maybe the biggest retransformation in, in, trans, in freight transport and because of a lot of things around the world with globalization, particularly with Ukraine. Maryland is going to become a major, major port of entry. Franco has talked about this extensively, and I agree with him 100%. We are going to be able to, in the coming years, dredge the harbor, get some of those big ships, you know, the ever-given type. That got Maybe stuck that in the Chesapeake. Big, you know, I think it's called a Panamax. Yeah. They'd be able to fit. Yeah. Yep. Ever given got stuck in the Chesapeake, so maybe we can do a Panamax instead of a, instead of Ever Given. But we can get those into the harbor, which will greatly increase the amount of goods we have coming through the state. For Marylanders, our our goods will be at the lowest cost in the area because it'll be coming direct to us. We'll always have stuff, and that will create many many jobs in the stevedores, the longshoremen, the computer technicians. Not to mention the businesses that will be serving the inner harbor, which greatly needs a renaissance of its own now. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw the, the pictures of the large cranes that were brought in from China mm -hmm. to come into Baltimore because the United States doesn't even have the capacity to make its own, own cranes. So I would also love to see Maryland somehow figure out to manufacture these things because that's where much of the value is added. It's not in the commodities where if we ship out commodities and grains to other countries and then they actually manufacture it and then we send it back here. And then we assemble it. So it's assembled in America, but it's not actually manufactured in America. We're losing a huge part of that value chain. And uh, that's, that's something I would love to see. And, and hopefully with this harbor, bringing in a lot more goods and things like that, we can really start creating a, a dynamic economy of, of manufacturing in Maryland as well. I'm not sure how much of an industry even exists anymore in Maryland, but that, that is something I'd be really interested in seeing over the next decade. Yeah, in, in our state, a very large amount of our economy is based in federal government, state government, local government, and nonprofits. For individuals who do not hold college degrees, and especially for individuals who don't hold high school degrees, there are vanishingly few opportunities, and we have some of the highest cost of living, at least on the East Coast. So... We desperately need to increase that manufacturing and transportation capacity with the expansion of the port that will also necessitate an expansion of the railroads. We have a large web of CSX tracks in Maryland. Right now, those are effectively only usable for freight rail. We can eminent domain those. I would propose a very fair rate would be about a cent every 10, uh, every 10 kilometers. That'd be pretty cheap. And they would call that a ripoff, but because they've been so cruel to our legislature and even trying to negotiate, the governor can eminent domain said railroad tracks and convert them to, if not 100% passenger usage, it could be probably passenger usage in between the hours of maybe 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. And that all the freight rail is emphasized overnight because you don't really want people riding the tracks at the same time as a giant coal car or a giant oil tanker. So if we did that, Think about how many cars we get off the road because Laurel and Bowie are already connected by railroad. Laurel and Baltimore are already connected by railroad. We can do a lot of that at a very low cost, which will greatly expand the economic opportunities of the, of the new harbor, you could say, 
and expand the recreation and transportability. I think it'll be a grand success if by the end of my political career, you can wake up out Cumberland and by the afternoon, you're over in Ocean City and you never had to get off the train. When I learn about the rail to Ocean City 130 years ago, that I guess would go up to Baltimore and then there'd be, it'd go all the way out to Ocean City. It takes three hour drive from where I'm at just outside DC right now. And just imagine having a rail and I love trains. You can just sit down and relax, read, go to sleep, whatever you want, and not have to worry about the stress of driving and all those other things. Mm. And also be able to connect down into Waldorf and Oxon Hill. And it's just yeah. crazy that we have this, the capital city of this so-called great nation, and we still don't even have a ring, like a ring rail around it. I mean, we, the, the purple line is uh, an attempt to connect part of it but it, it, we still don't even have the, the rail ring. And you go to any European city, any Asian city, of they're going to have proper trains, and we, we don't even have that yet. So Yeah, the, there's, a, there's a lot to be done with WMATA. Like right now, there's still the 10 to 15-minute delay between every train. The trains should show up at the station every, every three to five minutes without exception. With the mark, particularly on the weekends, the mark only comes about five or six times a day. If you miss the seven o'clock train uh, on the mark, you might end up being stuck at the station at 11.15. There are a lot of people who like, that's not just a, a, a drain on their time. That's a, that's a risk to their health with the weather. So the mark should come every 15 minutes. The WMATA should come every three to five minutes. We really have a lot that we can do on rideshare. There's an existing senior program for seniors where they can call for a ride, but it's of course extremely inefficient. I want to put a lot of money in that because seniors do not like driving. We now have so much traffic that a lot of the people, the, the state is un, un, unrecognizable to where it was 20 years ago. I used to live off of a one-lane road. It used to be rural. And now we're off of a four-lane highway with two shopping centers within three minutes. So it's even on that bit, traffic is one of the biggest enemies of Marylanders. If we can reduce the number of cars on the road, we can do a lot on health. We can do a lot on safety. We can do a lot on economics. And most importantly, we can make a lot of people know that government is responding to their biggest concern. Because, I mean, people people spend so much time of their life in traffic in Maryland. I, I joke around that Maryland is governed by the highways. A lot of legislators are doing their, their, their talk, their uh, stuff over the phone while they're zooming around the state because it takes so long to get home now. So just want to do a station break. I'm speaking with Richard Deshay Elliott, and you can find his platform on richformaryland.com. And with the remaining time that we have, I want to talk about some of your energy policies and then how we're going to pay for it. And sure. I know that you're coming from a very uh, pro-environment view of, of energy. I also, huge environmentalist, I'm also a huge nuclear proponent, and I'm, I'm pro-Calvert Cliffs, and I know that doesn't jive well with a lot of uh, leftists, nuclear energy and things like that. But could you talk a bit about your energy program and your thoughts on nuclear? Sure. So I have on my website, my proposed Green New Deal for Maryland, which would involve planting. Right now, there's a proposal for, right now, there's the legislation has passed to plant 500,000 trees a year, but it's going to be done in a really kind of scattershot way. You know, nonprofits will handle it over here and neighborhood groups over there or in a lot of people will never hear about the program to request a tree in the first place. So again, it gets back to the accessibility point. I want to plant a million trees a year, and I just want to hire Marylanders where you plant a tree, here's a paycheck. 
Like, of course, there have to be guidelines around where you plant certain kinds of trees and a balance of male and female so there's not pollen everywhere like now. But I want to help plant a million trees. I want to get us to 100% renewable energy by 2030, another thing that future Governor Francho wants to do. And we can do that with large-scale solar panels. We have enough buildings in the state that even without clearing forests, I do not support clearing forests for solar panels. I do not support that as a general rule. We have all of these buildings in the state where if you weatherize them, you could put solar panels on top. One of them that I love that I've seen more lately is the parking lots that don't have roofs, you know, don't have the overstructure. When you put solar panels on those, not only do you have solar power, you add shade. So when people come back to their cars, they're not steaming hot, burning your hand when you touch the doorknob. So 100% renewable energy by 2030, which I fully believe is possible, gaining, creating the jobs in the infrastructure. Right now, I fear the long future where Republicans are going to shut down power in Black communities first. That's going to happen in the future. I have no bones about it. I know it's going to happen. I think Maryland can take the exact opposite approach and have us be the state that protects the most concerned citizens, particularly seniors who need AC in order to just remain alive, to enshrine those protections first and then start building out where all the economic opportunities are going out in the zip codes that need it the most. Because this will be an enormous long-term government program of the resiliency and response to climate change. I guess my opinions on nuclear, I personally hold, I'm not opposed to nuclear. I think that Governor Francho would probably be opposed giving some of his past history. He came out of the anti-nuclear movement, but that is to say that now times have changed considerably. It has been shown that people are moving towards natural gas rather than moving towards solar in many cases. So given I've seen like charts about the kilowatt hour accrued from nuclear, it's something like you get like 300 kilowatts from every hour of energy. Whereas for like uh, solar, it's something like 16. Nuclear yeah, mag magnitude's different of energy density. Yeah. And then the, the only concern that comes up, at least from my opinion, is number one, where do you store the nuclear waste from what I've seen, at least from documentaries and research, is the, it comes down to storing it in extremely cold water inside of the facility. But these things also work in tandem. It takes a lot of energy to keep that water cool in order to keep the nuclear rods from melting down as they have in other places. There yeah. can be so much energy accrued from the solar panels, you don't ever worry about Calvert Cliffs going into meltdown. So I think the two work in them where once we have the surplus of power for all the poor communities, for all the communities of seniors, for all the governmental facilities, I do want to see nuclear power explored in our state. I just want to have incredibly intensive discussions around where the waste is stored, because I don't think there's going to be a nuclear incident. There hasn't been one in very, very long in the United States. But given where the landfills are located, given where the litter on our roads is located, there are many black Marylanders and many rural white Marylanders that worry you all are going to store nuclear material under my feet. And I don't like that. You'd hate if I stored it next to your house. So why would you store it here? So I'd be yeah. with it. It just comes down to what does the language look like regarding where the waste is stored. I, I just read an article today that we have we the amount of energy still in the the nuclear fuel rods that have been used are around over ninety percent. And so if we can recycle them, we have breeder reactors. And right now, with just the nuclear so-called waste, 
we could power the United States electricity grid for a hundred years just with that. And we just need to take the moratorium off our breeder reactors that we used to have that Carter shut down. China has built one. Russia has one. I believe South Korea has one as well. How do you respond to the critique of wind and solar as we're in battling climate change and you're actually, we're deploying these energy producing mm-hmm. sources that are more dependent on climate and intermittency. So how, how do you propose backing up wind and solar or just solar if we're taking wind out of the equation? Well, we can talk wind too, but given that we have the Chesapeake Bay as a natural resource, the largest estuary in the United States, what we could do just off of, for example, off of Smith Island, they've been asking for uh They've been asking for what to call it, for uh, weather, uh, for protections, for jetties to protect them from the worst impacts of climate change. Smith Island and a lot of those other little islands are going to perish into the sea, unfortunately. Something that we can do in the very short term is I think not only can we have wind panels, I think that there is not wind panels, wind, windmills that generate energy. I would like to look into how do windmills help protect islands from Wakes. It turns out, I, I, from the reading I was doing just a couple of days ago, these islands actually get damaged by the wakes given by the large boats. So I already said I want to bring large boats in the Chesapeake. I also want to help protect our natural environment as best as possible. There's a distinct possibility that having a ring of windmills, you can generate enough wind that you can reduce the wakes considerably. Of course, that will produce opposite erosion on the other side of the bay. But if you can have something where it's serving a purpose of energy and it serves a purpose of climate change resiliency, it serves a purpose of jobs, it serves a purpose of manufacture, there should absolutely be a solar panel and a windmill manufacturing plant out in Dundalk, out in Owings Mills, out in Fort Washington. These things are investments that not just create opportunities right now, but if we don't do them, the things our state is going to go through over the just my lifetime alone, you can feel how horrible it is outside already it is soupy already and it's only the start of june by the time we get to the election people are going to be unable to go outside yeah and i personally think energy is life and we need as much and abundant energy as possible there's energy austerity everywhere i lived in zambia for three years and saw people living off grid and everybody just wanted electricity and basic things that we take for granted so when we see the cost of energy rising here, trying to figure out how we can have limitless or at least abundant, inexpensive, clean energy is one of the most important things. And this is why I think it's important to continue having these conversations because so much of wind and solar is backed up by natural gas right now. And that's why a lot of the natural plants are pushing wind and solar because it guarantees market share as they shut down wind, as they shut down coal, hydro, and nuclear. And meanwhile, like our solar panels, China has an 80% control of the solar panel market in the world. They have a control uh, monopoly of silicon and they're building these and fabricating these through coal plants that they're building every three months. So it's important to just try to figure out how we can harmonize all of these. And that's why I'm very pro-nuclear. It's a domestic industry and it's high paying jobs and union jobs. But that's just me (laughs) going on my tangent. I I I like the point because in in neighboring states, I think especially with Ohio and West Virginia, I would be if particularly one of these other states was willing to. I think in Ohio there was a huge scandal regarding pay for play in nuclear. If my if yeah. my memory, yeah, Perry, uh, 
Perry plants. Uh, yeah. So as as that issue gets corrected, because like the House Speaker, a lot of legislators, business entities were all implicated. As they try to recover from that, clearly they have nuclear capacity in Ohio. At the very least, if everybody from about Frederick County on West had the capacity to enter into whether it be Ohio or West Virginia, I don't think Pennsylvania will do it given Three Mile Island, but any of these neighboring states, we can try and enter compacts with them where I already talked with you about what I think we can do for solar and wind. We can even have trade deals where Ohioans can get free wind energy from Maryland that can power their nuclear plants if they give nuclear energy for free to the, to the counties of Allegheny, Garrett, Washington, and Frederick. So those are the kind of things I want to help negotiate with our next governor, with our governors thereafter. This is why I am emphasizing a governor, uh, my governor candidate, I will dare to say, is the best negotiator among various coalitions in state politics. I really think that if he's working on a national landscape where he does not really have relationships or knowledge or people, because he's a straight Maryland guy, I want to help expand that so that we can get things for our state while also helping improve the energy capacity in other states. Even though he's anti-nuclear, if there is nuclear energy in Ohio, we might as well get something out of it, right? Yeah, and and keep Calvert Cliffs open because I think they still have another 20, 30 years left yeah. on, in there. I in there. not support the closing of yeah. Calvert Cliffs. I, outside of the story regarding the uh, insurrection lady, I've not heard anything negative about Calvert Cliffs. Fully support nuclear energy in the state. Just want to know where individual legislators stand on where the waste should go and how the energy costs of the facility should be maintained because you have to have energy 25-8 at yeah. a nuclear yeah and and you know the base load the idea that you you know nuclear provides 90 it, it's running 90 percent of the time it has a you know refueling cycle every 18 months so you don't need coal trains coming in every three days or natural and, gas on like spot prices coming in and what you said about the rods i think is one of the most important notes as technology improves there's a lot of things that we can you could call it like in the future recycling. Right now, let's say we can only get a nuclear rod to 90% or to only 10% energy depletion without risk of it melting down. In the future, where either we can get colder water easier, where we can have a nuclear facility that's powered by other things that can keep the inside temperature cooler, we will eventually be able to use some of those old rods and get an extra 5%, an extra 10% energy off of them with basically no additional cost. So again, if everybody wants to store these nuclear rods in the middle of the desert, we can't do that. So that's why uh, this is great to hear about from you. And even though Francho has that history, I'm going to tell him direct, I do not want to close Calvert Cliffs. And we need to work with Ohio, with our, with our neighboring region, to get energy into our state and out of our state on a good, on a good negotiating basis. Yeah, and I, I don't want to like bore the audience because I'm, I'm just a pro nuclear guy, but I appreciate you engaging on that conversation because I know a lot of people on the left have uh, reservations as I once did as well. I used to question, you know, why, why nuclear it's, it's yeah, the, because of all the issues that I've heard. That's one where I'd love to hear the opinion of other candidates for delegate. Cause there was, there was already um, a climate pledge to support solar and wind I believe, and, and most candidates signed it, most of the incumbents signed it, but I'm curious where different individuals 
on age breakdown, race breakdown, and political ideology breakdown feel. I actually think many conservative Marylanders would prefer nuclear energy. That would lead me to prefer it because then it's something that's doable. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people together. Yeah, a lot of conservative Marylanders, ironically, do not. Do, I, they hate solar and wind panels for a variety of reasons. There's some more like Montgomery County, you know, golf club Republicany kind of people coming out for solar panels, but. Even in their ideology, they do it for tax credits and they tear down forests and black communities to do it. So nuclear plants are not necessarily the opponent of the black community, not necessarily. Whereas the Republican tax credits for tearing down farms in Waldorf for solar panels for Republican power or Republican energy in Montgomery is against the black community. So even on implementation there's a lot of things in this outside of just carbon sequestration. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. The sequestration is important, but for who, why, how, and, and, and for whose agenda is very important. And I'd love to hear you ask other people about that opinion because I want to build a, a pro-nuclear safety coalition in the General Assembly because I actually don't know most even Pinsky. I don't know Pinsky's opinion. Yeah, he, he's against it. He's also against, and I, I love Senator Pinsky. I'm, I'm friends with him and yes. I interviewed him. He's against the nuclear. He wants to shut down Calvert Cliff. And he's also against the pipeline coming under the, I, I guess, the Potomac, which is natural gas pipeline, which I, you may have problems with pipelines, but if you have wind and solar, you need natural gas. You need something uh, to be able to back it up. And, and natural gas has these turbines that were once used in fighter jets that can scale, that can ramp up very quickly up and down, unlike coal, hydro, and nuclear. Those are slowly, they, they don't ramp up as quick as, you know, when, when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing. That's why natural gas is such an important component to go along with wind and solar. But I go off on a tangent. We could continue going down this forever. I do want to talk to you about how you want to pay for all of this, because these are all incredible... <laughs> social policies. And I also believe that there should be an economic bill of rights where everyone's guaranteed a job, everyone's guaranteed housing, everyone's guaranteed healthcare, good education, social security. But how are we going to pay for it all? Sure. So the, I think maybe the best part of my Maryland Green New Deal is at the very bottom, there is a lengthy section on how to pay for it. Maryland has several billionaires. Our current income tax structure, it's actually is more hurtful to be in the upper middle class in Maryland as a salary taker than it is to be, or to be any economic class, matter of fact, as a salary taker, somebody that goes home and cashes your check or you know deposits your check, than it is to be a wealthy person that lives off of the benefits from your existing owned property, your owned capital. So I really want, and I emphasize to Francho extensively, we need a pro- we need a tax code rewrite entirely. In a tax code rewrite, I want to increase taxes on the wealthy. I want to increase taxes on like carbon emissions, particularly for businesses, particularly for homeowners who use extraordinary amounts of water and extraordinary amounts of of gas. There's a neighbor. There's a house in Glendale that dumps about ten gallons of water like every week on their neighbor's property just because they can. So things like that, where you're, you're going through environmental degradation and waste, not because you're t- giving a bath to a bunch of people, but because you're literally dumping water. These people deserve, I'm not gonna say egregious fines, but some kind of fines. And all of this needs to be earmarked into the Climate Change Prevention Fund or what, 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 whatever you wanna call it. 
for the implementation of this program. Beyond those things, I already talked about a significant increase in the minimum wage. If the minimum wage is increased to about 25 an hour for the big businesses and 15 an hour for the small businesses, I think that about, you know, one fifteenth, one second. Sorry about that. For about one, you know, of that additional gained tax revenue, I've seen a receipt in a, in a municipality recently where they broke down where the tax money was going. At least 15% of that additional revenue from those huge minimum wage increases should be specifically earmarked for this fund. So there's a lot of those little pieces in order to fund the bigger program, but there's also outside of just the local taxing aspect is nationally through the Department of Energy and through other national departments, especially the Department of Health and Human Services, who I want to work with our next governor on, we can get national money through grants, through applications, through begging, through a lot of things our state has really thrown to the side. I haven't heard uh, Hogan, well, even when Trump was president, I didn't hear Hogan really arguing about how he was getting additional benefits for Maryland just kind of as a showman and a negotiator. I don't think that's the primary role of a governor or of a legislator, but it is a role that can get money. So I want to work on that aspect to also get money from whether to be the Department of Energy or whoever in federal government that for Calvert Cliffs, if we're worried about shutting it down, why can't we get 20 years of additional back pay on it? Because if we have Calvert Cliffs, we're protecting the United States from climate change. So I want our, our, our funding to emphasize that. Of we are investing in climate change resiliency, climate change prevention, and this merits investment from neighboring states, from the federal government, and from nonprofits, and from businesses. I mean, if our state is like quite literally the coolest weather-wise on the eastern coast, why would businesses not want to be here? Yeah. And if it has good public transit and yep. beautiful seashores that you can get to all the time and great yeah. urban environments and a yeah. uh, great population of labor that's well-educated and has both the university and then the skills training as well, then people, yeah. the businesses will, will come here and then we'll also generate businesses internally. So yep. in, in closing, where do you find hope? What, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed every day? Sure. I get to talk with and meet and interact with and help uh, the most interesting cross-section of people imaginable, whether it be a 90-year-old woman who didn't know her, who her new mayor was and simply wanted somebody to help her get the food at the grocery store that her dietary needs require, whether it be a student in a neighborhood who has the same sixth-grade teachers I did 16 years later and he wanted to know why he had a D in social skills. And I told him, all that you can do to try and fix that is trying to have your teacher and your parents talk. Because after elementary school, you don't get a D in social skills. You get suspended and you get put into a system that's really hard to get out of. Uh, and these are just a couple of little interactions of people I'd never met before. They were happened to be in close proximity to me. So I get to do these kind of help for people all the time at no cost or benefit to myself outside of the graciousness of people saying thank you. I get to help a large cross-section of candidates who there's some who rock with me all the way. There's some of them who rock with me on one thing, and I know that from that one thing that we can carve out a niche for them in government. Even Marvin Holmes, who I had huge criticism of a liquor store proposal for him. I am now telling people that he would be the ideal person 
in state government to promote black home ownership, removing somebody from the legislature who I don't like some of their stances, but also in giving them the powers to make what is great about them as powerful as possible. So because I have a lot of these relationships, because people know I stand on my own two feet after this interview, nobody's going to call me and say, how dare you said that? I am able to negotiate in great faith, not good faith, in great faith with people from our current comptroller down to board of education members. And that gives me the hope that not only can I do stuff for you, I can get it done easier than other legislators who got to spend three years passing a bill. So I have a lot of hope in that. I have great hope. I know the next governor on a personal, intimate level, him and his staff, that I know a lot of the next county council members and delegates in our county. And I truly think that Maryland is going to be one of the best states in recovery coming out of COVID under the next generation of leadership. Well, Richard Deshaies Elliott, Democrat for Delegate, District 24, Prince George's County, Maryland. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to be back and I can't wait to talk with you more about the future of our great state. Thanks, Evan. Mm -hmm.